Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 6. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, that you would grant us faith. Uh, We know that we need it and we pray, Father, that you would give it. We ask you now to open our ears Uh, Guide our eyes and our thoughts that we would learn from your word, that we would learn from your Holy Spirit, that we would learn of you. We give you thanks for all things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Several years ago, uh, probably, I'm thinking probably 2006, I got an email, and many of you probably get similar emails. It was a story that I believe with 99.9% conviction was probably made up, but yet I wanted to share it because I think it's kind of appropriate to our topic today. It was the first day of a new class, and it's a philosophy class. So everybody comes in. It's a huge room, one of these stadium things, and then the professor comes in. The professor comes in, and he sets up this little box. He gets up on it, and then he basically ignores the class and just starts talking to the sky, saying, okay, God, I defy you to knock me off this box if you really exist. And he goes on taunting God, and he gives God a deadline. He basically gives him 10 minutes, and then he'll stop. He'll pause for a minute or two, and then he'll go on again, and he puts up his arms. And, of course, all the students, this is the first day, junior year, I mean, your your freshman year, and so this is odd, but uh, at a quiet time, Suddenly, there's this commotion, and the professor is off the box. Well, what many hadn't seen is that a young man down front had walked up there and knocked the professor off the box. (laughs) He nailed him. And so then the professor is, you know, stunned. This has never happened to him before. He's done this before. This is his common introduction to these freshmen for their philosophy class. What did you do that for? And he says, I'm a former SEAL. I just returned from Iraq, and God is busy over there protecting our troops. And I came here to take care of this today for him. So now, if you're like me, you enjoy that joke, and you know it's a joke, and so we don't expect jokes to be true. We don't expect necessarily jokes to appeal to our greater nature, but I did want to comment on the joke because there are some things about it that I really have to explain. If I'm going to use it from the pulpit, I have to explain to you because I don't want people to misunderstand. Proverbs 24. And you can turn there because uh, I'll actually reference 24 and 25. So in Proverbs 24, we read this starting at verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls 
and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him. So see, we are admonished to not exult over our enemies falling or God will refrain from bringing punishment upon them. And so you have to ask yourself, why? Why would God do this? Why would God refrain? And that brings us to Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25, starting at verse 21. 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, when I read that, I have to ask, what exactly is the Lord rewarding me for? Is it for giving him water and bread? Or is it for heaping coals on his head? I don't know. I, I could see it either way. The reward is tied to the coals more closely than it is to the giving of the bread and the water. But we know that this is what we are to do. Why do we know this? Because it's God's character. God is forbearing, and he expects us to be forbearing. God tolerates us and our sins. He expects us to tolerate the sins of others. So see, I enjoy that joke immensely. But I know that there's an aspect of it that appeals not to my godly nature, but to the other one. So, God understands and commends even our desire for justice. He will give our enemies their comeuppance, but in his time. And so we must wait upon the Lord. Now, there are two things, though, I want to highlight about this story, and that's why I chose it. I didn't chose it just for the fun part of it. But there are two things about it that I want to point out. First is this. The sailor, this seal, proves what it is that the professor seeks. What is the professor seeking? Evidence of God, evidence of faith. And I believe the sailor proves it. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we read this. And this is a beautiful definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Connect faith with the second definition. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. So faith points to something, the reality of something that you don't see. And it is the faith of this sailor that motivated him to act that is evidence for the existence of God. And I've heard this said before, and people don't give it credit, of course, because it's typically the unbelievers that are opposing you. But yet, Christianity is huge. It's transformed the world. It's real. And the God that transformed the world is real. Now, imagine, I want you to imagine, like I said, 99.9% .9 sure this is a, is a, is a made-up story. But for an instant, imagine that instead it is true. You're in this class. You see this happen. You see this guy go down there and hit this professor and then proclaim why he did it. What is that sailor potentially sacrificing? A good grade, you can bet. He's not getting a good grade. If that professor is so adamant and so free to do what he's doing, he's not going to be bashful about flunking this guy. Secondly, he's probably going to get expelled from that school. 
He's not staying there. The school will not tolerate this. They won't ever trust him with another professor again, at least not another liberal one that spouts off like that. What's the third thing that he might suffer? Well, campus security, you can bet, was called the instant that professor got up off of his feet. And so now this poor soldier is being, or sailor is being, sorry, this poor sailor is being arrested and he's being carted off to the, to the, to the uh, whatever they call them on campuses. I don't know if they're called jails, but wherever they're going to hold this guy until the real police can come and deal with it. And so he might go to jail, who knows? Or at least some liberal judge might say, well, you're obviously suffering from PTSD. We're going to have to send you through this battery of psychological evaluations before we unleash you on society again. So see, if it were true, if this really happened, that is potentially what could happen to such a man. And yet, for the honor of God, he's willing to risk it. It meant nothing to him. Just get up there and knock that guy off that box. But again, like I said, that's appealing to this piece of me that isn't part of the the light and bright and patiently waiting for God piece. It's the part that wants to take it into my hands myself. Now, I said there were two things, and there is a second thing, and that is that God has already given his answer to the professor, and it's in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So see, That's not just us. That's everybody. Every conscious, every reasonably uh, competent person that can reason knows this, yet they deny it. Now, the title of the message, I don't know if you noticed it in the bulletin, but the title of this message is God is Immaterial. God is Immaterial. Now, you could say that in two ways, really, with two intentions. And I did kind of mean it to contain both because immaterial has only two definitions. They are of no real importance or inconsequential. That's the first definition. That's the definition the professor would appeal to. Not formed of matter, spiritual, incorporeal, meaning lacking material form or substance. That is what we would appeal to. That is what the sailor appealed to. So see, this story well illustrates both of these definitions of the word immaterial. Jesus said this to the Samaritan woman at the well. God is spirit. God is spirit. So what does that mean, that God is spirit? Now also, he's invisible to us, normally as is all the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm cannot see by our earthly fallen eyes. The fourth question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his, in his what? Anybody know the answer? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so 
I've been, I do a lot of data at work, and so I built a lot of spreadsheets to best represent that data. And when I read that, I think, oh, this, is, this calls for a spreadsheet. And so you've got God is a spirit, right? What is God? God is spirit. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those are the headings of the three columns. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And then you've got this beginning column that has these seven attributes. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. How many cells is that that we need to fill out? 21 cells we need to fill out. And I tell you what, we're not done when we fill out those 21 cells. With all that we could fill in there, God is an infinite in power. He is eternal in glory. We could give you verses for all those. As a matter of fact, what is God? And the answer, God is spirit, infinite. That has 42 reference verses for it. I'm not going to give them to you. Just go to Google, type it in. You get them right away. And so it would take me a long time to read those 42 verses for you. But yet they're there. And so the catechism question defends its answer. But I believe something is missing. And it's actually a big one, I think. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Knowledge is not listed there. Wisdom is. But I don't think all knowledge is wisdom, do you? There's lots of knowledge that probably doesn't mean it's wise. There's just stuff that God knows that we know. God knows everything, and so he knows all the stuff we know, and some of that is stupid. Some of that isn't wisdom. So see, I think there's one missing. And see, I'm not criticizing the Bible. I'm not criticizing even the Westminster Divines. I think what they've created is wonderful. What I'm pointing out is the difference between God and man. Those Westminster Divines, I'm sure, thought they had a pretty good list, and I think they did. But it is incomplete. And so see, that is, I think, a good phrase for us when we refer to God. Any understanding we have of him, any list of adjectives we have of him is, by definition, incomplete. And so we can't even describe God in words, let alone understand him in reality. God is mystery to us, yet he has condescended. But let me first talk about the greatness of God. God can convey his greatness to us, to our puny, finite minds, only in the context of our created world, right? We wouldn't know anything else that he can convey, can convey to us. And we know very little of what is in our created world. So see, God has condescended to man. He has come down to our level to communicate with us. And this is a good thing, because otherwise we would not know God. And yet he has condescended to reveal himself to us. And that which he has revealed to us is true. And we can know him through what he has revealed. So we can't say, oh, we'll never know God then. Oh, that, you know, it's, you know, have you ever gotten to the end of a spreadsheet? It has like, what, 25,000 some rows and columns. I mean, that's a big number. How big is 25,000 times 25,000? I'm not a math whiz, but that's big. So see, we could fill out that spreadsheet and still not know God. So see, God had to condescend to our level. 
And we often refer to this mystery of God, this, this, this comprehensiveness of God as attributes, attributes of God. And so this is how we kind of define his otherness. There are incommunicable attributes and there are communicable attributes. There are attributes that we share with God. There are attributes that we do not share with God. For instance, we do not share God's aseity. His aseity meant that he is alone, apart from everything. He pre-exists, and he is complete and perfect. It's that list. It's those 21 things done perfectly. So see, we are not that. But there are many things, even the omnis, you know, I mean, I love the omnis, and we'll go through them because they're in Psalm 139, and it captures them well. Omniscience of God, God knows everything, There is the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. And there is the omnipotence of God. God can do anything he wants. So see, even the omnis, we aren't everywhere, are we? We're here right now, so we're not elsewhere. But see, God is everywhere, but we are at least somewhere. So see, in some tiny, tiny way, we can be like God because we're somewhere. He's made us to be somewhere omnipotent. God can do anything. Well, we can do something. Even the littlest of us can do something. So see, these are ways in which we are like God. You take these humongous attributes that are communicable to us, and we have this little speck by which we can relate to God, by which we can know that if we were to expand this, oh, okay, I can kind of now think about God in that way. Now, in Psalm 139, and let me read it because it's beautiful, we actually uh, went through this, I don't know uh, how long ago, but we did it for a communion meditation series. We went through it kind of quickly because it's a big psalm and I didn't want to take one verse per week. But let me start at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This is God's omniscience. He knows us better than we'll ever know ourselves. He knows what we are going to say. He knows the words on our tongues. He knows the thoughts in our minds. He knows this, and not only does he know it now, he knows it for all time. He knew it from the instant you were conceived. He knows it to the instant that you die. This is all open to him. We are entirely open to God. And just these nuances of things that we barely understand ourselves are very clear to him. We are puzzled by ourselves and others. He is not puzzled at all. He knows us. He made us. He created us for the purposes that we are playing out, fulfilling by his design. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. When I had covered this, for the communion, I mentioned to you that it's, it sounds, it could potentially sound like David is trying to run from God here, but he's not. He is comforted by these words. He is comforted by the fact that he knows 
He is in God's presence, and he can never, ever be out of God's presence. That is comforting if God is your friend. If God is not your friend, it's frightening. I think I mentioned to you, I'd read Cold Blood by Truman Capote, and there was a calendar that the killer would see, remember from his youth, and it had this all-seeing eye in the cloud. And he was essentially running from that calendar, the memory of that calendar, all of his life with all the evil that he did because he knew God could see what he was doing. And he was scared to death of God for what he would one day do to him. So there is this omnipresence. God is everywhere. He created this world. And so he knows every inch of it. The omnipotence of God starts at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And I already referred to that. This is really a flip back to omniscience, really. And so this is only God's omnipotence in the context of of us as people as who we are, as how we consist, body and spirit. He, he addresses both. And yet, when you think about God's power, think about the galaxy that we're in. Think about the universe that we're a part of. Billions of stars, billions of galaxies. It's just amazing. But see, God, I believe he didn't put a lot of detail about the stars or grandeur of the stars because, you know, we, we would never understand that. We can't even relate to the stars, but we can relate to our bodies. We kind of understand the mystery of our bodies. And so he talks about that. I am always astounded in, in chapter 1 when, when, in, uh, when he makes the, uh, the sun, moon, and the stars on what, day 4? Yeah, then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, the moon. He made the stars also. That's all he says about stars in Genesis. He made the stars also. So modest. Our God is just so modest. Now, let me read from Daniel. There's a part of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar, I think, really says it better than most Christians. But, of course, maybe by this time he'd become a believer because uh, he had been thoroughly humbled by God. But when we read, starting in Daniel 4.34, Nebuchadnezzar has now come back to his senses, and he says this, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. When Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged this majesty of God, then God gave Nebuchadnezzar back the majesty that he had had before. But in his pride, he had forgotten God, and God took him down, took his rational mind away from him. 
Now, uh, today's message is actually the first in a theme because I have a few weeks. Uh, Phil has conferences to write papers for and to attend, and hopefully he has some rest maybe to get, as well as uh, writing books and papers and stuff. And so I will be here for a few weeks. And uh, the theme that I chose after deliberating over several, um, this one felt right, even though it's kind of daunting. But the theme is Christian materialism. Another way of phrasing it would be addressing matter in a godly manner. I watched Rocky and Bullwinkle a few weeks ago, and so now I have to title everything twice. (laughs) This series will be about living in this material world. And yet the first message is about God, because God is the maker of this material world. God is the one that gives us all the blueprints for what we are to do on this earth, how we're to do it, and what we're not supposed to do on this earth, and why we're not supposed to do it in some cases. Sometimes he doesn't tell us. But see, our material world was created by an immaterial God, Jesus, actually. Our material world is sustained by an immaterial God. Again, Jesus. And let me read to you from John 1. I mean, it's beautiful. I believe I did a communion message on that too a while back. But John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So see, we know Jesus was the person of the Godhead that created this world. It was the Father that actually will later give the world to Jesus, even though Jesus was the creative power behind it. So now, Colossians 1 also has a beautiful way of describing this. Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And uh, Toby, this is your proof text for the buddy that you were talking to the other day. Um, This is the one that shows that Jesus actually created Lucifer, that they're not brothers, they're not bros. So now God created matter and his word is filled with instructions concerning it. Matter is not temporary. We will exist in matter forever. So get used to it. You're not going to be floating on a cloud with a harp that somehow doesn't fall through the cloud when you set it down. You are matter. God will glorify this matter that you are right now, and it will, you will go to be with him. But we were created material beings, and we will remain material beings Now, unbelievers often deify the earth, don't they? And we are really in the midst of it now. We just had our PHF, and we had E. Calvin Beisner speak to us about that topic. Uh, Enemies of God elevate the world beyond what is right and proper. And what is funny, I find this really ironic, even irreligious, secular men and women now worship the earth effectively. They are worshiping it through science, but they're worshiping it nonetheless. They so long for true meaning in their lives. The time of man has passed. The Renaissance brought man to the pinnacle, tossed God out, brought man in. But see, we've now gone beyond that. 
We have put Gaia on the pedestal now. That's the idol we worship. And we sacrifice people to no end to the earth. Even when you study the communists, that's what their purported goal was, was the benefit of mankind. But really, it wasn't any individual. It was just everybody, the collective. And yet, now we've gone to that next step. Now it's the earth. Oh, now it's not just mankind that is worthy of this. It is everything. The earth is one big living organism, and we're just on it, you know? And in that we happen to have some smarts, we have somehow inherited responsibility for guiding it. And those that are too stupid to know that that's their job, well, we'll deal with them. This religion, I believe, is radical environmentalism. Environmentalism is good. That's a part of our stewardship of the earth. But radical environmentalism is not good. It goes too far. We have clergy for this religion. They're scientists. They are priests. And they zealously serve the cause. We have a sacred canon of scientific literature. And I don't know if any of you looked into Climate Gate, but that is interesting. I mean, these people were privately speaking the truth amongst one another, telling about how, oh, you can't say this, you can't say that, you must say this, you must say that, or you'll never get published, you'll never get funded. So see, that is their sacred canon. They protect it. They control it. They do not let us corrupt it. And they have sacraments that are instituted for the benefit of the laity. Things such as conservation, reducing our carbon footprint, reducing emissions, recycling. See, all of these things, if done properly as stewards, are good. They're all going too far. They're all placing man under the heel of an elite that is abusing their privilege and power and their position. And they have a high priest, EPA. The EPA is effectively the high priest for radical environmentalists anymore. They meet out death to the rebellious. They kill businesses. They kill individuals. They kill careers. They meet out death. They are the high priest, and you have to abide by their law or they destroy you. Unbelievers that question them are criticized, ostracized, and destroyed. I am not typically a conspiracy theorist, but when I read uh, the book, what was it, uh, by that famous author, he has all these famous books, Jurassic Park, and, and uh, this whole litany of books. He died soon after his latest book came out where he attacked radical environmentalism. I still don't know whether that guy didn't die based on some assassin, some radical environmentalist assassin took that guy down. He was only like 69 years old. He'd been in great health. I just don't know. I, I think it's gotten that bad to where people are willing to kill people over what it is that they're pursuing. Assassins. Now, we believers can, unfortunately, react to this as opposed to act in a way that's consistent with Scripture. So, see, Christians can react by denigrating the material world. And I believe, in part, I was guilty of this because I really shunned recycling. I, 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 if, if some environmentalist was saying this, I would do the opposite just, just to appall them. But I've begun to realize that God does recycle. He's recycling me. 
And so I see that our God is a wise user of resources. Now, I always think that God created it like that. Why doesn't he just recreate it? Why doesn't he throw everything away, us included? And yet that's not his way. He is recycling us. He has determined to take this earth, this fallen earth, and cleanse it and prepare it for him in glory. Now, we are children of God, and God created this material world good. Genesis 1, he uses the word good seven times. He created light, called it good. Seas, called them good. Trees, called them good. Sun, moon, and stars, called them good. He created the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals, and then us. Seven things that he's created, this this company of things, called them good. And in the last, he called them very good. So this material world was declared by God to be very good before the fall. And it has suffered, but yet God is still working with it and preserving it. And he made us stewards of it, and that's what we'll develop as we move forward in the weeks ahead. Now, Genesis 1.28 is where he gave us that mandate, and it is still in, in, uh, in play. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I believe it's partly why dominion was chosen for our church, because we do take this seriously. We understand God's eventual goal. Now, I want to talk a little bit, though, about seeing God. God, as we said, is spirit. God is traditionally, by uh, his nature, invisible to us, because he's in this spiritual realm. But yet, Scripture talks a lot about seeing God, doesn't it? And actually, let me just focus on one writer, the Apostle John. In John 1, 18, and in 1 John 4, 12, so in a gospel and in an epistle, he said exactly these words, no one has seen God at any time. Now, that is an unequivocal statement. No one has seen God at any time. And yet, let me read to you what he said in the third epistle of John, in the 11th verse. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. See, he's contrasting them. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. So he's implying that those that do good see God. And so seeing God even appears to be a requirement of faith, a requirement of the believers. So we please God because apparently we see God. Now, Romans 1.20, and I actually read that a bit ago, but let me read it again. It has something to say about this. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So we see here that God's invisible attributes are seen. The visible is visible through his work, through who he is. And it says, even, even his eternal power and Godhead. So, I mean, he's declaring that he can be seen and understood as God by everybody, every rational creature on the earth. So, his attributes are not just understood, they're seen. They're seen. So, do we see God or do we not? Well, let's go on. I think it is puzzling. Now, we know, 
Once upon a time, again, it's not just fictional, but it's for real. Once upon a time, man walked with God. So did Adam and Eve see God? Did Cain and Abel see God? The Bible says they did. God talked personally with Cain even after he murdered Abel. And yet, in Genesis 4.26, we read this. In the last part, right after it says, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. You see, God was withdrawing himself from the earth. Later we see that he walked with Enoch, and Enoch was not, for God took him. That's in Genesis 5, and it's actually quite a few years later. But so God did have fellowship with Enoch, but he appears to be the last one that he really walked with. When he appears to Noah, he doesn't appear to appear in the same manner that he did with Enoch. But so we know God was with man in the garden, even after the fall. He talked personally with Cain. Men began to call on his name, and God appears to have stopped walking freely with them. Now, after this time, we do have evidence of people seeing, peeking into the spiritual realm. And for instance, some of the most vivid are with Elisha, watching Elijah get carried to heaven in fiery chariots. That's not normal. (laughs) That's a peek into the spiritual realm. And then Elisha, when he's comforting his servant, basically asks to have his eyes opened, and then he can see. He can see the fiery chariots and fiery horses that surround the whole city. And so what that implies is that Elisha could already see them. Elisha had asked for a double dose of the spirit of Elijah, and perhaps that then gave him greater insight into the spiritual realm. I don't know, but he knew they were there, and he asked his servant's eyes to be opened, not his own. In Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar sees that fourth man in the fiery furnace. And he appears as if he is a son of God. Two chapters later, King Belshazzar, and wouldn't you want to see this if you went back in history? I think this is one of the things I would want to see. He sees a hand appear writing on the wall, that mini, mini tarkle. So, I mean, that is amazing. That is the spiritual realm reaching into this world to demonstrate his power. You have the transfiguration of Christ where Jesus is there in glory. And the disciples are just nonplussed. They don't know what to do. Uh, Peter is babbling. So now there are lots of others. We know this. There are many miracles. There are many insights into the spiritual realm. But that's what they were. They were really just insights. And so when John and when Jesus, frankly, too, declared that no one has ever seen God, I believe implied is no one has ever seen God the Father. You would die. We would die if we saw God the Father in his glory. So just as Moses had to veil his face to prevent the people from being startled, and yet he unveiled it when he went to see God, God was veiling himself. Even though his glory was radiating in Moses and radiating out of Moses, if he had seen his true glory, he would have just, you know, little crispy critter up there on the mountain. God would have just fried him with his holiness. So see, that's all changed now. We live in a time when all of that has changed. 
John 1, verses 1 and 2, that which was, this is the first epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John wrote these words so beautifully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to convey the grandeur of Jesus, God himself having come to the earth in bodily form. And now that is not the most amazing part, I think. I mean, that's amazing. But the amazing part is that he will remain in bodily form forever. There are heresies that say, oh no, Jesus just took upon himself flesh for the purpose that he had on the earth, and then he's basically discarded that flesh, and now he exists in heaven without the need of a body. That's heresy. Jesus is in his glorified body. Jesus is the Emmanuel of Isaiah 7. He is God with us. Jesus became the God-man. Now, we know there is a mystery in the Trinity. God is three in one. God is three persons. God is one being. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Paul uses the term Godhead, and I believe that's implied in Romans 1 and Colossians 2. Each person of the Trinity, and I don't know if you've ever done this study, but it can make you pull your hair out, but you go through Scripture trying to see where all the references are to God and trying to determine, okay, is this referring to all of God? Is this referring to Jesus only, Holy Spirit only, Father only? I mean, there are books dedicated to that topic, and they're very interesting, but it's very difficult. It's almost as if God doesn't really want us wasting our time trying to figure that out. We've gone far enough in knowing that the Father has sent the Son and that the Father and the Son have sent the Holy Spirit to see that there is at least a hierarchy relative to us in terms of how they function in what is called the economy of God. But boy, you just don't want to go too far into that. It's just scary stuff. You just don't want to ever be puffed up with pride about something so fundamental as to who God is. And so there's just a mystery there that we cannot penetrate. And yet, Jesus has these two natures, divine nature and the human nature, that though they exist, they are not diluted. And though he is in the Godhead, this humanity in no way corrupts the Godhead, but yet it has allowed Jesus to enter into our existence, our experience. And he's promised that forever, not just that one time, forever. Because it is he that we will see in Revelation. When this earth is glorified, when that, that holy heavenly Jerusalem comes down to this earth and is adorned for the bride, I mean, that's, that's Jesus who will be that husband, that, that God who is, who is there that we see. So see, I believe when we talk about seeing God and walking with God, all of these in the Old Testament are theophanies. They are all Jesus in pre-incarnate flesh, where he just took it upon himself to be present with people, and yet there is no longer any need for that. He has his glorified flesh. We will see him in heaven in his glorified flesh when we go. Uh, J.I. Packer says in Knowing God that in Jesus we have two mysteries for the price of one. 
We've got him as the second person of the Trinity and as having these two natures that unites us with him. It is beautiful. It is mysterious. It is amazing. Now, man was created as flesh and then given life. And let me read Genesis 2.7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So see, man was formed flesh, then God breathed life into him. And yet Jesus, it was the reverse, wasn't it? Jesus was in eternity past with uh, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and yet he has taken on human nature. He is united with us in this mysterious way. He, God, and then he take, took on this human nature. Now, Jesus was incarnate, he is now incarnate, and will remain incarnate. Paul wrote this in Philippians uh, 3, starting at verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. So now next week we'll go into more detail on man, on man's role on the earth, and yet I felt we had to begin with this immaterial God. And uh, I didn't want to spend too much time on Jesus because I believe we will talk at length about him in coming weeks. But I want to end with this. And that is that we Christians ought to know this. We ought to be enthralled by this. God loves us. The other religions of the world are, are just so pale and empty by comparison to Christianity. And so there are aspects of Christianity that I really encourage you to master the knowledge of such that you can share them with people who don't share our con Christian convictions because it makes us unique. And frankly, it makes us their opponents in many ways because, see, you could talk about God all you want, but as soon as you talk about Jesus... You offend people. And so I just really am thankful sometimes when I see people posting on Facebook and stuff where they're proclaiming their faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're aware of this controversy that's going on down in Texas now with the cheerleaders. They have these verses that the football players run through. And of course, now the ACLU is trying to shut them down, but the girls are fighting back. And I applaud them. I think we all should fight back. We have freedom of religion in this country, not freedom from religion. They even had a woman on this news thing as interviewed, and she is with an organization called the Freedom From Religion, as if that's what it says in the, in the amendment. And it doesn't. It says freedom of religion. Those girls should be free to do what they're doing, not opposed for it. And so I just encourage you to come to a greater, deeper understanding of who Jesus is to you, the mystery that he is, and proclaim his name. Now, you don't need to knock any professors off of a box, but, you know, we'll, I ask you to be forbearing in that. Father, we thank you for your many uh, blessings to us. We thank you for this mystery of how you have united with us. Uh, we do not uh, want to offend, Lord, and yet we want to go absolutely as far as you are calling us to go in being able to explain this wisely, biblically, truly and correctly. And so I pray, Father, that people would take this seriously, that they would want to understand the mystery of the Trinity and Jesus to the degree that you have revealed it in Scripture such that we can be prepared to deal with those who just have no clue as to what it means. We thank you, Father, for your goodness, 
for your presence with us now and always. And we praise you, Lord, for who you are and for what you've done. And we thank you for sending Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.